Everyone faces challenges every single day. Some are chosen and bring us joy. Some are given to us and bring struggle or pain. Whether the diagnosis of an illness, the news of a friend's death, the loss of a job, or a bike accident, we may be asked to step up to face issues that demand courage and perseverance. Hurt is just one of the many aspects of full lives. Each week on this show, ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope, Dr. Joanne Dahl helps us understand how we can use acceptance and commitment therapy to learn to accept what we cannot change and move forward into a valued life. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joanne Dahl. Welcome to ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope. On the August 28th of this summer, it will be a 50-year anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, which many believe marks the high point of the civil rights movement in America. So where are we 50 years later? Are we any closer to Martin Luther King's dream that we can all live together as brothers and sisters in this world? Today you're going to get the chance to talk to an expert, Dr. Jonathan Cantor. Jonathan is a researcher, associate professor, and a FAP, which means Functional Analytic Psychotherapy. Many of you may remember that Mavis Ty was on the program uh, last year. Uh, he is a FAP term professor at the Psychology Department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Jonathan took this position after 10 years as a psychology professor at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Jonathan is the author of a book, several books, but one book that he thinks is particularly helpful called A Guide to Functional Analytic Psychotherapy, Awareness, Courage, Love, and Behaviorism. Uh, you can read more about this book and about Jonathan by clicking on his name and the link on this week's Act Taking Her to Hope. Welcome, Jonathan. Hi, Joanne. How are you? Good. Now, Jonathan, you're in Seattle. That is nine hours away from me here in Sweden. Right. Yeah, how how is the weather there in Seattle? It is a beautiful, crisp summer, late summer day here. The mountain, Mount Rainier, is out for all to see her beauty. It's a gorgeous day in Seattle. Hmm. It's also a nice day here in Sweden. Jonathan, uh, this issue of, of, of racism is very, very difficult. And uh, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, so I actually remember that speech, and uh, along with John F. Kennedy's uh, work and... I wonder what what got you interested in this really tough area. Well, I grew up in in suburbs of Los Angeles, basically, and I grew up in a pretty much a white suburb, and I was fairly segregated in my upbringing, and and uh, I, it was sort of a typical suburban American childhood. Uh, my parents were very liberal and very socially conscious, and so we talked a lot about these issues, but I didn't really immerse myself or sink in to cultures that were different from mine, mm -hmm. really, until I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 10 years ago. It was really mm -hmm. an eye-opener for me, moving to Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. 
Why? What happened there? Well, Milwaukee is, uh, for viewers who aren't too familiar with these American cities, Milwaukee is a typical American city in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's like a lot of other cities, um, but actually some researchers have recently named Milwaukee the most segregated city in the country. Okay, what, well, how is it segregated? Well, uh, essentially, and just to put it bluntly, and this is part of how we, we talk about racism, so I, I'm going to apologize up front that I'm going to be a little blunt with my language. Um, mm. But essentially, all the white people live in certain areas of Milwaukee, mm -hmm. and all the black people live in other certain areas of Milwaukee. And then there's a large Latino community that also lives in a very specific area. Mm -hmm. And it would take a lot of people to move from one area to another in order for Milwaukee to actually feel like an integrated city. Mm -hmm. um, so do you mean just uh, living segregated? Do you mean also work work segregation as well, social? Right, absolutely. And, and like I said, Milwaukee is like a lot of other cities in, in America and, and in Europe and in the world where the, the poor people live in the inner city. Uh, and uh, middle class or upper middle class or upper class people live out in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, and in Milwaukee, it, it tends to be that most of the poor people living in the inner city are black. Mm -hmm. And most of the middle and upper middle and upper class people living out in the suburbs are white. And it just tends to be worse in, in Milwaukee. And, and that cuts across employment. The inner city is, has lots of problems with unemployment, poor schools, lots of urban problems that are typical in America. And it just tends to be worse in cities like Milwaukee. And basically what, what happened in Milwaukee is um, it was an industrial city, and I know you're f familiar with that, um, mm -hmm. lots of industries. And, and when the industries left, they left behind a lot of unemployment in the inner city that never really got solved. Mm -hmm. So so what were you interested in? I mean, when, when you saw that, what, how did you react to it? Well, we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 10 years ago, and, and we moved to a very nice sub suburb right outside the city, and it had a good school system and the white picket fences that you expect in the Midwest, and it was all very pleasant. But just just around uh, two miles from us, the city changes. That's re where the segregation line was. And on the other side of the segregation line, um, we had very poor conditions, people living in poverty, lots of unemployment, and um, and I started spending more and more of my time in that area doing work, mm -hmm. uh, psychology work, working with depressed folks. Mm -hmm. um, and I just got to know people, and I and I started to to see firsthand just what life in the inner city of American cities is really like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this this type of segregation, it's interesting because it's when. Uh, uh, you hear more and more about from an evolution perspective that segregation of any kind is really not good for any of us. It's not good for the culture, it's not good for the society, it's not good for health. No, it's really not. And I, I spoke, uh, I got to know a number of people working in, in Milwaukee, and one of them is a close friend of mine named Keith Bailey. And uh, Keith is really an, an amazing man who is doing a lot of good work in Milwaukee and the region. And um, he called me up one morning um, after a 13-year-old boy named Darius Simmons, a uh, 13-year-old black boy named Darius Simmons. He was killed by his white neighbor. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and the, the white neighbor is a man named John Spooner, who's now been sentenced to, to the remainder of his life in prison for this murder. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, John Spooner accused Darius of stealing some stuff from his house. And then when Darius was outside taking the garbage in one morning, he went up to him and, and shot him uh, point blank execution style um, mm-hmm. and said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Of course, there's no evidence actually that Darius actually did steal anything from John Spinner's house, but if, but even if he had, you, you know, it's still yeah. a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I mm. spoke to uh, I spoke to Keith Bailey after after this murder, and Keith was very upset. And Keith knew the mother, who's a, a wonderful woman named Patricia Larry, who actually watched John Spinner uh, kill her son. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Keith said to me, Jonathan, we've got to do something about racism in Milwaukee. We've got to do something about what's happening here. You know, Darius Simmons is not an isolated incident. I don't want to horrify you or your listeners by giving you a whole litany of these sorts of stories, but Darius Simmons is not an isolated incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and so Keith and I started talking about what to do, and and, uh, I started thinking about my psychology background and how psychologists could actually make a difference in this area and that's really what led me to uh to do the work that we're talking about today yeah and that's going to be really exciting to listen to jonathan um exactly how you do that but could you start with explaining to us um i mean so we can understand i mean you hear the word racist and racism but i mean what is racism and how do you how do you see it expressed well i don't want to get too academic um, and academics actually will argue and debate about what racism is and how to define racism. Um, so I think the most useful way to look at it is, is to simply say that there are lots of different definitions of racism, and, and perhaps more important than racism is the issue of discrimination, um, because that's more the, the actions that follow from racist beliefs or attitudes. And, mm-hmm. and ultimately what we care about are how people treat each other, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people and how people act towards each other. Okay, so if people, you mean that uh, people could, could, it doesn't really make much difference if, if you have a racist thought, that's what counts is how you actually act on that thought? Well, yeah, I would say something like that. I don't know if I'd say it doesn't make a difference if you have the racist thought, but I would say the real the real issue is how people act and behave. Of course, racist thoughts are, are unfortunately pretty natural, mm-hmm. uh, pretty common based on you know, the, the programming, the, the social media programming and the, the cultures in which we're raised, mm-hmm. it's almost automatic. It's almost impossible for anyone not to have racist thoughts from time to time. Is it, Jonathan, if we just uh, were to de-dramatize it a little, is, is a racist thought, could it be like that um, a fear of the unknown, fear of the different Right, exactly. I mean, if you could imagine, if a viewer could imagine going uh, into a, an office building in downtown of a city where you live, or at least in America, and going into an elevator, and you're the only person in the elevator, and then and then at the next floor into that elevator steps a black man. Mm. And that black man looks like the black man that you see all the time on TV. He looks like a he looks like a rapper. He's got his pants hanging down low. He's got gold chains on. He's got a big beard. Mm. And um, you're going to, unless you're, unless you're unusual, unless you've spent a lot of time 
with black men like this. Um, you're going to have a, a reaction. You're going to feel a little uncomfortable being in the elevator with this man. Mm, mm. That's, that's actually part of our culture. The, the problem isn't you having those individual thoughts. The problem is the culture and our context yeah. that creates this. Is this what Martin Luther King meant when he talked about that uh, a, a way to help ourselves is to just to just to get used just to be together, make food together, sing together, do things together? Um, then so those fears of the difference would just mellow out, and you'd see more more we are more alike than not alike. Do you think that's what he meant? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what he meant. I th I think he had this he had this image of children growing up together, holding hands and being raised side by side, children of all colors and all races and all ethnicities and all religions, and all of us just living together. And of course, there's a bit of a of a naivete to that to that uh, fantasy. It's just impossible. It's never going to happen. But certainly, we can do better mm -hmm. than than what we've been doing. And, and I think 50 years later, after his speech, we, we don't know what would have happened if he hadn't been, if he hadn't been assassinated when he was. Mm -hmm. But I think 50 years later, I, I got to think people are fairly disappointed with where we're at 50 yeah. years after the civil rights movement. Certainly there has been lots of improvement. Things are better mm -hmm. than yeah. they were. But if you look at what's happening in the inner cities of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and other cities around America and around Europe and the world, I think we would all agree there's a long way to go before we have real racial equality in this world. Yeah. So what do you think, Jonathan? What what can we as clinicians, um, when, when you were there in Milwaukee thinking about this, what, what type of thoughts did you have? What can we do? Well... There's lots of stuff that needs to be done, and um, we need to work at the political level, at the societal level, at the community level, uh, at the business and organizational and financial levels. All of that is really important. However, I'm a psychologist, mm -hmm. and you're a psychologist, and so I want to talk about what we can do at the individual yeah. psychological level. Yeah. Um, and what we know from the research um, is that what really matters is, is contact. It's a very simple idea. It's about doing what you're scared of, right? Yeah. It's about talking to the people you're scared of. It's about interacting with people who f bring up that fear. So you can get through that fear and get through that fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. Contact is what's most important. Mm -hmm. but, um, but what we find is that there are lots of people who have lots of contact with people from different cultures for whom racist attitudes and beliefs don't go down yeah so for example think about a, po a white police officer working in the inner city with lots of black people there's lots and lots of contact but there's still lots of problems with racial profiling and stereotypes mm -hmm. and discrimination among white police officers right if you look at um, medical doctors and hospitals in the inner city there's lots of white nurses and white doctors who are well-meaning and well-intentioned, um, and they have lots of contact with their black patients, mm -hmm. but their racist attitudes and beliefs are not going down. There's lots of data on on racial inequalities in healthcare and differential treatment of whites and blacks by doctors and things like that. So how do you and, explain that? 
Right. So this is the problem. On the one hand, we say contact is important. On the other hand, we have all these examples of how contact doesn't seem to be helping. Mm-hmm. And so the explanation is that the contact isn't the right kind of contact. Mm-hmm. And and the issue is the contact is all one-way vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is the vulnerability is always going from the black person to the white person. It's going from the black patient who's telling all about his or her life mm-hmm. to the white doctor. The, the black person in the community who's interacting with the police officer is telling that police officer all about his or her life. But the white doctor, the white police officer, isn't mutually exchanging vulnerabilities. The right. black person isn't learning about the life of the white doctor or the white educator right. or so forth. Yeah. And that, go ahead, Jen. That actually reminds me of, of working up in the Northwest Territory in Australia um, uh, at the primary care centers with the Aborigines. That the, exactly that same situation that that the, uh, they d- often did not want to come into the the centers because they had so many associations of you know their children being taken away from them from the white people. And of course, there there are extremely fearful of going into a situation uh, of a, a, a white clinic when things can happen. And you're right, it was never this exchanging of different experiences, but a one-way, a one-way contact, just as you're saying. Right, that seems, that seems to be what happens. And, and in a way, it's better that there's at least some contact, but in a way, it's also preserving the, the status quo. Mm-hmm. We, have, you know, we have rich white people with their black servants or their black maids or black helpers. And again, even though the black person is in the white person's home, that white person isn't necessarily letting that black person in on the intimate details of his or her life. Yeah. And the exchange tends to always be one direction. Okay, so contact is not the is is not the solution only. You have to you have to be be willing to really get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Like to to really treat this this person like a a trusted friend and to talk about your own vulnerabilities. And Mm -hmm. that's difficult for people. That's difficult for me with anybody. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy thing I'm asking people to do. But I do think the more we are really able to create deep, meaningful relationships with people who are different from us, where we're mutually exchanging vulnerabilities, Mm -hmm. mutually talking about the things that are hard and the things we fear and our losses in life, Mm-hmm. That's when you can really get through these, the automatic programming that makes us scared of each other. Okay, so you uh, you actually have developed uh, workshops with this, Jonathan, anti-racist workshops based on uh, ACT and FAP. Yes, I have my colleague uh, Keith Bailey and I uh, in Milwaukee, and uh, and a team, a, a biracial team of people who are really interested in this developed this workshop thing over the last couple of years, and we've done it a couple of times, and we're just now starting to do research on it. So who, do, um, who is the audience, I and mean, who comes to these workshops? Well, the idea is that we can, bring, uh, we can bring the workshop to any organization that wants to improve uh, relationships among people who are different from each other. So we could go to a, we could go to a police force, um, or we could go to a business or a school setting or a community group, anywhere where it doesn't have to be black and white people. Um, you, you know, in America, black and white really is the historically the main racist problem. But of course, racism and discrimination and differential treatment of other people 
exists across the whole spectrum. We could bring uh, gay and straight people together. We could bring Hispanics and whites. We could bring Koreans and uh, and black people together. We could bring disabled and abled people together. Even men, and, even men and women. Of course, we could do. <laughs> Fantastic. Anywhere where there's differences, mm-hmm. um, the idea is we bring people together and we we lead people who who want this experience through a, a series of structured exercises um, that that by the end of it result in. A mutual exchange of vulnerabilities and people really breaking through barriers and getting to know each other deeply in a very short period of time. Could you explain um, what the main, main principles of the workshop is? Well, I think the what I can say for viewers is the way we structure it is with three words that I would say are very important words. And the words are Well, they're actually in the title of the of the fat book, but the words are awareness, courage, and love. Awareness, courage, and love. Yeah, and I can I can briefly explain what what those words mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so awareness, first of all, is awareness of your automatic programming. Mm-hmm. Awareness of the fears and the thoughts that pop into your head automatically. You can't help it. Um, so if I were to example, for example, if I were to say to you, Mary had a little lamb, right? That was an easy one. <laughs> so that's automatic programming, right? That's just built into how you were raised in your context. Mm-hmm. If I were to give you a choice, the choice is quickly say black people, white people or Asian people. Mm-hmm. Okay, fill in the sentence. Blank are the best dancers. <laughs> black. Right, black people, right? So that's automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, I could have asked you some harder questions, like fill in this one. Uh, white people, Asian people, or Muslim people, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And the sentence is, blank people hate America. Muslim. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not, it really shows the things you don't, you don't want to admit that you have those stereotypes. Yeah, and of course, and of course, Joanne, you're a you're a wonderful, you're one of the most wonderful, compassionate, beautiful people I've ever met in my life, and and even you have this automatic program, <laughs> right? So so the awareness is about opening up to the fear, to the programming, to the thoughts that happen all the time, uh, in in our bodies, in our in our human bodies, um, and being being the awareness also implies openness, and just observing how we react and and people can do meditative mindfulness practice to help cultivate this kind of awareness in ourselves but awareness is the first step mm-hmm. awareness and acceptance of the automatic stuff that happens in our bodies okay so awareness is number one courage involves courage to take a risk to really break through the barrier and talk to somebody who you're scared of. Mm-hmm. Courage to, to not just ask the other person about their life, but to actually talk about your life. Mm-hmm. And this is, again, where a doctor or a police officer would say, well, you know, professional boundaries suggest that I shouldn't be talking about my own life in these situations. And and, and that's true. I don't want to tell people to do things that are inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But if you have 
if you if you have the awareness and the courage and the love, if you if you want to go in this direction, you can find appropriate ways to do this. You can find people to test this out with, mm-hmm. to really try to take courageous risks, to really get to know people deeply, and to let them get to know you too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the workshop, we we have a couple of exercises that that push people to take these courageous risks. And of course, people always have the choice to say, "No, this is too hard. I don't want to do it." And opt out. We don't we don't force people, but we encourage people to take these courageous risks. Do you have an ex- can you something you can say now on the radio? What what uh, an example of that? What kind of exercise? Well, well, one exercise we do is pulled straight from the act. Uh, the ACT workshops, and it's simply eye contact. You get very close to each other, and you maintain close eye contact. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't done this before, you wouldn't believe how difficult it is to really just look at somebody mm-hmm. deeply for a few minutes. It's extremely uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, and it takes a lot of courage to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the first things we do is the eye contact um, but then we actually encourage people to tell tell each other their stories. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we encourage is a story of loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone has loss in their lives. And we'll encourage people to break into pairs and one person to tell a story of loss and the other person to listen and then the other person to tell a story of loss and the other person to listen. So in that way, the vulnerabilities are mutually exchanged. Again, there's that phrase I keep using. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we do things like that. Okay. That's the that's the courageous risk part. Okay. And then the last part? The last part is the love part. Mm-hmm. And um and the love actually goes hand in hand with the courageous risk. If if you are listening to somebody telling you their story of loss, your job is to respond with love. Mm-hmm. Um and I mean love in a in a very broad sense. Um, some people are a little uncomfortable with the use of the word love, and, and again, I like to be blunt. I like to just get get stuff out there. Mm-hmm. What we mean by love is not is not an intimate, necessarily a sexual or a romantic love, mm-hmm. but it's it's a it's a full experience of the humanity and a compassionate full experience of the humanity of another person who you're interacting with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the job is that when you're listening to someone else's story, hearing someone else's vulnerabilities, how can you express your natural human love for that person in that moment? Mm-hmm. And we have we have some tips for people for how to do that naturally, how to respond to each other in this way. Um, and people practice it, and they and they. What kind of tips is it? What kind of tips? Well, for example. Um, one tip is to, it goes back to awareness. Um, as you're listening to this story from another person, how are you feeling in your body? Mm-hmm. Are you feeling sadness? Are you feeling empathy? Are you feeling like crying? And the love tip is to, is to express how you're genuinely feeling when you're hearing this other person's story of loss. And sometimes it's scary for people to ex- really express sadness for example, but expressing your sadness in response to another person's story of love uh, of loss can actually be a very loving thing to do. Mm-hmm. Would that um, pertain to my own feelings? I could use these same principles, having the courage to feel what I feel um, as I look at someone else's loss. Yes, yes, exactly. 
yeah so so awareness courage and love sort of show up and all completely in the moment for you like that mm-hmm. yeah. Jonathan do you have an example where you've used these three principles of a, of a person that you've worked with and how it's worked um, well I can say um, I can say probably the best example I can think of is just my own life and just how my experience in Milwaukee I really feel has transformed me into a into a different person now than I was when I moved to Milwaukee 10 years ago. Now, of course, I'm no longer in Milwaukee. Um, but again, when I was in Milwaukee, I feel like I, I had the fairly standard white male upbringing in America. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I, I would never have called myself a racist. I was always pretty open and interested in people from other cultures. Mm-hmm. But there was always that fear in me Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in, around people who were different, there was always that fear in me. And I, and I think like a typical person, well-intentioned, I would just try to push the fear away mm-hmm. and not make much of it and go about my day. Mm-hmm. Um, but the work I did in Milwaukee really made me confront that fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, day after day, getting to know people, really hearing people's stories, deeply and being willing to share my story, my story of my family and my upbringing and my losses, being willing to share my story with people. And now that I've left Seattle, now, excuse me, now that I've left Milwaukee and moved to Seattle, some of that, my biggest losses, the people I miss the most are the friendships that I made in the African-American community in Milwaukee, friendships with people who are really very different culturally from Mm -hmm. me. Mm Um, there are, you know, there are, there are black people who have left the, you know, the hood, as you say, and moved to the suburbs. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there are black people who stay in the hood who really have retained that African American culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked hard to build those relationships and, uh, and now I really miss, I really miss them and I miss, I miss people in that community. And I really credit it to, to my own journey through awareness, courage, and love, and my own efforts to challenge myself that I created these relationships and and now really have these people in my life that are so meaningful to me. Oh, that's that's wonderful to hear and, and very encouraging using awareness, uh, courage, and love, uh, something we, we could all think about in our daily contacts with anyone who's different. Jonathan, we're getting to the end of the program. Uh, I'm sure that we have radio listeners who, of course, experience uh, racist thoughts or fears of the unknown in, in their daily lives. Um, what advice could you give them to help them to come over these thresholds and, and build uh, re- lasting relationships that could help uh, us and even our society and, and the world? Well, I, I would say, going back to awareness, courage, and love, I would say... Um, Focusing really on awareness and love first with yourself. Um, and so the, the first step is to really become aware of how you're feeling and how you have these reactions to people. Um, and being very gentle and loving and compassionate towards yourself for having these feelings and thoughts. Again, it's they're actually normal to have racist 
fears and thoughts and I, I don't want to legitimize it or make it okay but I do think the first step is to recognize that it's not your fault and the way through it is not to deny it or push it away the way through it is to have awareness and compassion for yourself and then take courageous risks at your pace you know don't push yourself too hard find that right level of discomfort just outside your comfort zone mm -hmm. but not so far outside your comfort zone that you're really off on a ledge but find opportunities to challenge yourself in little ways throughout the day with people you know to really get to know people mm -hmm. who are different from you and this would be a way to enrich your own life and increase your own life quality by taking this advantage yeah I think so I think there are so many we have so many well-intentioned people in this country who really want to make a difference and people who are if you're living a middle or upper middle or upper class existence you might be giving money to charities and foundations and so forth and a lot of times we'll think I'll donate some money to support efforts in Africa to deal with all the horrible problems there or some other place like that and that's of course really important but I just want to point out that there's lots of need right here in our own neighborhoods, mm -hmm. in our own backyards. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we don't want to turn our back on our own backyards and focus on problems far away from us. Mm -hmm. um, and there's lots of need and things that we can do to make our communities more vital and more vibrant and more rich and diverse right here in our own cities such that 50 years after Martin Luther King Jr. made his I Have a Dream speech, we can actually get closer to racial equality here in our own communities. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for being on our program today. I, I think that certainly um, uh, looking up your workshop and, and looking at the principles, maybe even attending uh, a workshop and, and looking at the FAB book certainly could help us uh, uh, ourselves and even help us with our people who we work with come closer to that dream of Martin Luther King. You've been listening to Dr. Jonathan Cantor. Uh, Jonathan is a research associate professor and FAP, and that is Functional Analytic Psychotherapy term professor at the psychology department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, Jonathan is one of the authors of a book you might want to take a look at. Um, called A Guide to Functional Analytic Psychotherapy. And here were the three words that Jonathan was talking about, awareness, courage, and love. So take a look at that link or at uh, and Jonathan's website. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Joanne, please see her website at joannedahl.com or click on the host website button in front of you on the webtalkradio.net page. You may also see her books, The Art of Science of Valuing in Psychotherapy, Living Beyond Pain, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Ease Chronic Pain, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Chronic Pain, Values in Action, and Epilepsy, a Behavior Medicine Approach to Assessment and Treatment in Children. All of these are found easily by clicking the cover or going to Amazon.com. We hope you'll join us again soon for another episode of ACT, Taking Hurt to Hope.